Hey team, welcome back to episode 14 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. Today, we're going to talk about real life and the diligence process. Last episode, we talked about some real life with communication and how to find the opportunity back from our kind of original episode two and three. And today we focus on what happens when the seller can't or doesn't produce the perfect set of diligence documents. We're going to talk about actual experiences where people have had to make Make that decision without all the facts or maybe a set of imperfect facts. And as always, name specialties edited for privacy. We're also going to give you our two cents. So before we dive into how to Nancy Drew a practice, I want to give our group a little bit more dirt on you. You ready? Okay. Fire away. <laughs> give me your first job ever and your first job out of school. So maybe more for first professional job. Okay. So my first job, I was uh, 14 years old. My mom sent me down and said, son, I know you want a car. You've been talking about a car since you were like 12 or 13. It's not going to happen. Go get a job. So I went up to Minyard's Grocery Store there in Oak Cliff, just south of Dallas, Texas. And I spoke with the general manager and he said, son, you're not 15 years old. I said, I know. But when I turned 15 on August 28th, I want a job. And so I got the job. And he was very impressed. I went uh, about six months before my birthday. I started there, and I was a sacker. Collect, I was about to say collect carts or sacker. I was a sacker, girl. Like at, at, that, at those days, because this shows you my age, we took the groceries out. And you got your little tips, your little 10 cents and 25 cents. I mean, $3.35 an hour. And I, I got to be like a little fast sacker, <laughs> and all the girls were so cute because they're all the, they were all the checkers, and they were just all cute checkers. And I had a white shirt and a green tie and uh, like a green little apron, and so I, I loved it. I worked I there for about it. a year and a half. I got promoted to produce, fifteen cents an hour. I got to three fifty there, so and I got to eat all the fruit I wanted. So uh, that, was, <laughs> that was good. All right, what about you, Christy? Tell oh, me. Oh man, I have a long history with Sonic Drive-In. I love Sonic. I was a car hop. Yes. Um, both skates and non. Tips always were better with the skates on. Similar. Started when I was 14. In Texas, actually, at that time, there was a rule you could work when you were 14, but you had to stop before like seven. So right. I did a lot of just I remember weekend that. Yep. shifts. Then I worked there until I was 18. Okay. So a good four and a half, five years. And I loved it. I saved up my console of my car once I got one, was always full of Sonic Peppermints. And I saved up enough to buy my first car, which was a Camaro, because my mom made me put my entire paycheck nice, back, but nice. I could keep my tips. So I always had a lot of change, a lot of mints, and loved it. But that was first job. And yeah. So. Okay. Did you have the roller skates? Oh, yes. Did you do like a little a dance moves with No, it? but you... the first time I ever did this, I ran into the car. It was like a <laughs> hill. And I went so far, I ran into the car and I had a flurry, it was called at the time, and it had like an open lid. And the flurry went over into oh. the guy's lap, the whole thing. It was it was the most embarrassing thing ever. So You two would have been Learned crazy. <laughs> love how I ended up where I am today. Okay, so let's dive in yes. um, to the topic here. So yes. very important discussion. But it's important you understand that what we're talking about today um, and what we're going to get into is when you don't have the perfect set of diligence, but it's not for the entire process, right? Mm -hmm. We're just talking about when you can't get all the information you need or the seller can't produce that information. I mean, it's early on, right? Mm -hmm. We're still just trying to figure out, is it right or is it not? Mm -hmm. This is not when you're closing and you still haven't been able to see a full-on profit and loss or a tax return or a production report, or you still feel like there's, there's numbers that aren't adding up. So just wanted to kind of be 
clear about that. And we'll give you some examples of both as we go through here today. So I think the first thing that we get is they maybe they don't have a collection report or there's no PL and the buyer or Canada is trying to figure out the size of the practice mm-hmm. without any formal profit and loss. So how best or kind of what are some clues someone can look into when they're trying to figure this out? Okay. So this is our Nancy Drew approach. So we joked a little bit before we started prepping for today. You know, does our audience know Nancy Drew? Please so if you know Nancy Drew, if you know Nancy Drew and you're the age of 25, send us a message and say yes, duh, we do know Nancy Drew. Or you had to Google who Nancy Drew was. It will so, make me feel very old if you don't know who Nancy <laughs> Drew is. Okay, so what we got to do here is we have to look at you know we could look at the internet, we could look at the practice, we could talk to the doctor, we could ask the Benco or Shiner. Patterson reps, we can ask all these people and we can try to figure out like, hey, how big is that practice? So let's start looking first at the number of ops. And so if it's a three op practice, a general rule is the most you can get out of an op is about 250 of collections. So if I see someone that I'm talking to, maybe established doctor and say, yeah, I got three chairs. I'm thinking about expanding to four. I can usually say, so you're doing somewhere around like this 600, 700 collection mark. And they're like, yeah, 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 that's about right. And then I usually say, you know, so you have like one full-time hygienist, maybe you've got like a part-timer, but you're doing around four hygiene days, you know, a week. They're like, yeah, 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 that's, that, that's about right. And so what that normally tells me is you can get about this 250 per op, and so you're kind of limited. So that's important because to me, if I see a three-chair practice, it's really just a one-doctor practice. And if I'm limited on space and I only got... 15, 1800 square feet, and some guy or gal is trying to bring you in as a partner, I know that's going to be a little bit of a roadblock. But if you're a D4, maybe you've got one year experience, two years experience, and you're looking at just a smaller practice where he or she is just going to retire out, this might be a nice practice to purchase and invest. But one of the things, too, we'll probably start looking at is our ability to expand, and we're going to need another op because, again, we're going to be, we're going to be limited. Now, a good hygiene rule, and we really want to think about this, is a hygienist will be able to produce, general rule, is about $180,000 out of their chair, okay? So if we really break this down and do kind of the numbers to kind of check on this, we typically would say is how many hygiene days do you have uh, in this practice? And so if we said it's four hygiene days, so then what you would say there Okay, there's eight hours in a day from a working standpoint if they're doing a nine to five or something with an hour lunch. So I take eight, then I multiply times by four days, and then I multiply times by 12. And so basically I have 1,500 available slots that I could see patients as a hygienist. And then you go and say, well, what's the average fee with the cleaning and with x-rays? And it's somewhere around that $120, $140, somewhere in that range per visit. And so I add that math up, and all of a sudden, guess what? You get your $180,000. So that's how we back into this. And so a general rule is that we take our hygiene number. In this example, if we did 180, then I could, a general rule is that hygiene is doing about 25 or 30% of the overall collections. Yep. So if I took my 180 and I divided in to 0.25, it tells me the doctor. So I know this practice is probably running around 700,000 of collections. So just from asking something so simple as how many ops do you have? How many hygiene days do you have? 
pretty much get within about 10% of the practice just from that, from my almost 20 years of experience. So it's, it's pretty cool to kind of figure this out. Mm-hmm. Thousands of conversations with established doctors all across the country. And ask these, they're like, wow, you, you seem like you know what you're doing. It's like you've just done it enough. I've done this little investigation enough to know. <laughs> so this is a good rule. Yep. And then another thing you can kind of understand is if from a hygiene split, right, if they have a lot of hygienists and a smaller number of ops, you know they're running probably a larger percentage than that general rule of 25% of hygiene. Most practices that run a higher percentage of hygiene have a higher profitability because hygiene is what's profitable, right? Now, you may be limited in the doctor production and there may be unproduced doctor uh, work there that you need to do, but I think it also tells us a little bit about profitability if you can kind of back into some of these numbers. Yeah, and we're not philosophically trying to say, hey, go build a hygiene practice or go build a high implant practice where you just see very limited patients, but a general rule, you're right. It It just tells you what you're looking at, right? Maybe you don't want that. Maybe you want a full-on implant, super high doctor production practice. Well, if you had, uh, in this case, for three-chair practice and you had six or seven hygiene days a week, that what that tells me is that doctor is just not efficient Yeah. because there's not enough doctor chairs. Yep. You, you need to be able to have somebody sedated and be able to, you know, back and forth yep. from checking a quick hygiene to spend an hour with somebody, you know, to, mm-hmm. to doing those procedures to build your doctor production for that individual day. Absolutely. So we have that piece of it, right? We can kind of ask them general questions and apply these general rules and get to kind of a, this is an X collection practice. What happens if they give you roughly, you know, active patient count or a number of new patients a month, or you have some information that's more patient-based? What are some rules there? Yeah. So general rule there, I always just kind of start with like a million dollar practice just yeah. to kind of see where we're at. So general rule, is we have 1,800 active patients Mm -hmm. that will equate to this million dollars. So active patients is somebody who has been in the practice in the last 18 months. And I'm not talking about active as far as the Dentrix report or, you know, some type of software in the practice. I want someone to physically go in and do some type of chart audit. We talk about chart audits in other episodes. And so uh, I want that to be verified. Yeah. So as we dive deeper into the due diligence, which mm-hmm. that's our job and, and, and to coach that, that buyer through this process, certainly we will go into that. But on that high level, like what are you doing? You know, if someone tells me they're doing a million dollar practice, I would, I would ask them, hey, what do you think your active patient or the reverse? How many active patients you know do you have? Oh, we have around... 1,800. Oh, how many operatories do you have? About four, four operatories. How many hygienists do you have? Oh, about two full-time hygienists, about six, seven days. Million dollar practice. It just, it ties yeah. right back together. Similarly, so, you can know if that's something, I mean, it's kind of a little bit off topic, but you know if that's something you need to look into if someone's like, we have 3,000 active patients, and right. then you get a production or collection report, and there's a thousand, you know, a million dollars. Something's off with their classification of active patients, and that's why not solely relying on those reports that you're getting, um, we see people being misclassified or they don't review their records enough and if someone's not marked as inactive or they're put in the system wrong. So eventually, which we can dive into further down the road, but verifying that active patient number is important here. And I've seen a lot of examples. I've seen truck stop guys that are denture type clinics that are they're marketing on billboards. And so, yeah, they may get 100 new patients a month, yeah. but they're not going to retain mm-hmm. those patients. So there's 
always exceptions to these rules. Mm-hmm. And so again, just high level, we're just trying to look to see does everything kind of tie together. Does yes. this make sense for you to pursue? Correct. Yep. And that's the focus here. So we obviously, these are great general practice rules. And when there's hygiene present, but what about our specialty practices? So what about ortho? There's a lot of information that we can get from an ortho practice that's very kind of high level that a doctor's willing to share without it being financials that'll tell us a lot about the financials of the practice. Yes, yeah, so we work with a lot of orthodontists. So orthodontists, pediatric dentists, we, we've got a big just network of helping that particular specialty. And so general rule there again, uh, orthodontists will have about a $5,000 case start. So all you got to do is just ask back in the numbers, say, well, how many starts are you doing? They're doing 300 starts. Again, that's a $1.5 you know, million dollar mm-hmm. practice. We would ask more information about contracts receivable. That's really more in the due diligence phase, but that kind of high level, you just want to see like number of starts. And then you want to try to figure out again, because by specialty, there's certain numbers that are going to support you either as the associate or for looking to just purchase the practice outright. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on what we are trying to accomplish. Right. Ortho can handle quite a bit more on their own than a general or other specialty. Yeah. Typically you might see a general dentist, they're kind of maxed out where they're doing a million, two million, three or something. They're really tired. But an orthodontist we've seen where their capability of doing two and a half, three million dollars on their own. And if they're 40, may not necessarily make sense to bring you in even as a partner or to sell. Yeah. And then another example of this, an endodontist, right? How many canals are they doing a day, right? Yep. So typically, Times average fee. Yep. Yeah. So you same thing. It's like you're meeting this endodontist and you're just simply trying to figure out what the collections are and not quite unsure. It's like, simple question. How many root canals do you do today? And they tell you five. They tell you six. Then you, you know, how many days are you working? Okay. (laughs) You start adding the numbers up and guess what? You're at a 1.1, $1.2 million based on whatever the fees are. And the fees could be from a thousand dollars canal to maybe 2000, Mm -hmm. you know, a canal. So it really just depends. Yeah. And I think that again, once you get further in the diligence, if those numbers aren't exactly what you expect, maybe they're lower, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe they haven't increased their fees in a while. Maybe that's an opportunity. So, um, all of these things are initial kind of expectations, which then just give you more insight when you actually start getting that actual diligence information. Okay. So we do talk to some buyers who, for whatever reason, they are just not comfortable or maybe it's not time to ask the questions. What are some other non-invasive type questions that are even kind of further back or bigger picture that can help them narrow down maybe an opportunity or diligence, whether or not the opportunities they found are even worth pursuing any further? So thinking kind of like competition, like things you can find on the internet without necessarily having conversations. Okay. So, you know, I always talk about where do you want to go? Yeah. Okay. So where do you want to go? So in this case, I just met uh, a young man and his thing was California. The girlfriend was there. Okay. Yep. Not, not married, girlfriend. And when you look at places uh, like California, it is by far the most saturated from a dentist population yeah. ratio. You look at a company we refer to a bunch, Dentographics. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Companies like Dentographics, if you pull that up, you're going to see that by far it's saturated. It's, mm-hmm. it's like the worst place to be. But there are opportunities within every state. Okay. There's our opportunities just period. And, and so 
to me, I'm not just afraid of the 50th, you know, worst place to practice dentistry based on. Let's call it least desirable. Least I don't desirable. Think anyone's ever said California is the worst oh place to go, right? If, if you know anything about me, I'd love some California. <laughs> so 50th least uh, desirable. It's, but it is, it, it, say it is probably differently. It's the most desirable place to live when you're out there. <laughs> Which is why it's the least desirable it, it, place to start a Yes, practice. yes. <laughs> we need to go to California. Let's do the podcast on the road. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so this particular gentleman, it's uh, north. I won't say the city because it'll give it away, but uh, it's northern California. And there were three dentists in this particular area, and there was like 8,000 people. It doesn't scream, go just start right. a practice from scratch. But he marketed to these three dentists, and in this particular case, one of them kind of said, okay. And the other two, actually this particular dentist, they're referring out everything. Mm-hmm. Very limited website exposure, no CAD cams, implant placements, you know, uh, just no marketing efforts as a whole. And so even though the population, the dentist doesn't scream, competition, it's one of those things that it basically says there's an opportunity here. Mm-hmm. And so his first month in, it was doing about five fifty, and uh, the price was pretty reasonably. It was like $300,000. Got his website up and going. In his first full month, he did $50,000 of collections. I'm so excited because I really think this young man's going to hit a 60 and a 70 here in the next coming months. And so maybe we'll have to have an update yeah. uh, you know, on this story. But I didn't coach him to buy this practice. He came to me afterwards, and I'm, I'm actually really excited. So you've got to kind of know the area and look into that competition and kind of see some of those things. Another area that I, I want to talk about, which is a lot of dentists, they all want to go practice back in Utah. So Utah, if you look at Dentographics, is the 46th most desirable (laughs) or least desirable place. But I am telling you, when I visit with people from Utah, I don't have a lot of success stories. I don't have a lot of guys and gals coming and saying, look, I just purchased this practice and it was doing 700. Now it's doing a million. It's doing a million. I've got 40, 50, 60 new patients a month. So sometimes we got to take this information that we're getting from the Internet or from a source but then we got to dive in, you know, a lot deeper and looking in this example to my California guy, look into that little community of 8,000, look at these individual doctors, look at their marketing, basically look at that competition and to see what is my true opportunity in that town. Yeah. And I think that's the key here is that you can use the information that you find online. How many providers are there within a five mile radius, 10 mile radius in this certain town? And then you can take that information and kind of make sure that it's accurate, right? It, like Charles said, that those dentographics for that location did not look like it could support another provider. But if you know those other three people are in their 60s and 70s and they're going to be going away soon, then you can establish yourself and maybe it is a little bit slower, but then you have the ability to take on those patients and maybe develop those relationships that allow you to grow. So I think that you can learn a lot about where you want to go and help fine tune what opportunities may you want to pursue by just doing a little legwork kind of on the back end again, a little Nancy during with dentographics and websites, etc. Another thing we've talked about before is, you know, your pediatric dentist looking at the number of schools in the area or sure. growth. So all of those things can kind of help us diligence a bit further. Okay. So have a couple of examples. I know I have one and you have one here of 
when the diligence piece of this initially was just not ideal and kind of how those played out. So my example happens to be an orthodontist, had been looking for a practice for a very long time, was actually considering a startup and attempted to buy another practice and it had fallen through. And so it was really just kind of like losing a lot of hope here. Found an opportunity, came to us. It was priced okay. The overhead looked a little bit high, but you know, we said, Hey, it's worth diving into. And the buyer just said, Hey, I have a good feeling about this one. And so we started requesting kind of some basic information about case stats and production and contracts receivable. And we just kind of kept hitting walls of couldn't produce kind of the number of starts that had been there, like nothing. And like, couldn't produce phase one or phase two or like the contract receivable balance. And then like production was taking a long time for us to get. And it just started giving us kind of a little pause. Like, is this a red flag or is this just the seller, which does happen a lot too, their inability to know how to run these reports, right? Most sellers operate, I think older sellers operate on this. Things have been going well. Money is in my pocket. Like I can sense the flow of patience. I kind of have a general idea. And this seller did. This seller verbally could say, hey, we start about 30 patients a month, but from a buyer's perspective, that's great, you know, trust but verify. And so the buyer was just having a really hard time. We ended up deciding, you know, and I think Charles, you, you had these first conversations, is this specific practice had multiple locations. Mm-hmm. And so the price relative to the locations and what that finish out would have been if he would have started up, which was going to be his next option, was equal. And so I think we kind of said, hey, let's move forward on this diligence because the price of this practice would equate to what the equipment is worth in those offices because we knew the equipment and the finish out was decent. So that allows us to go forward and maybe do some further diligence to see and check out these numbers. And so what ended up happening is a full-on chart audit, you know, like we talked about earlier, where we go in and looked at charts all day long, or he did, and he actually was able to kind of verify that verbally what this seller had said was accurate he just couldn't get the reports. The seller was very open. Basically what had turned out to happen is all the staff had been inputting the patients in incorrectly and not updating them as they should have. So all the reports generated these just wonky numbers, like 200 prepaid patients when truly there were like 13. I think it just kind of goes back to the information that you can get initially may not be the information that's accurate. And you kind of have to dive in further and looking at what makes this opportunity still relevant for me to kind of move forward? So. Yeah, so this was just horrible accounting. This was horrible record keeping. Yeah. And then the buyer is basically looking at us saying, hey, do you think I should move forward or not? And so then we're kind of in a tough spot because we're like, okay, go ahead and engage us. Go ahead and pay our fee. Pay us a deposit when we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And so we typically want a thorough interview with a client before buyer and seller. You know, so if it's a buyer we're doing due diligence for, I want to have understanding what I'm helping you with. If it's a seller that wants to sell to you and we're doing a dual representation, I want to know that. If I'm going to value a business, I want expectations. If I'm going to list a practice, I want to know what expectations and kind of some of the financials are before we move forward. Mm-hmm. And I typically tell people and tell a client, I don't want to to start this process unless I know I can see the finish line. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see the finish line with this guy. Yeah. And I know you didn't see the finish line. No. You kept coming back to my office saying, what are we doing here? What are sure. we doing here? And uh, But in the end, I looked at this and I said, look, 
and we're going to call this guy John. John, you're an orthodontist. You're a saturated market. If I just look at these two offices, two locations, I look at the two finish outs, I look at the equipment, I look at the two arterial scanners, I look at the chairs, I said, you're at least, at least at $400,000 per location. So the fact that we're going to go borrow $850,000 for this particular practice In my mind, I can justify it. Worst case scenario, we do the due diligence and this is a bad practice. It's worth a couple thousand dollars you invested to us for a deposit to figure this out. We're committed. Let's just go go in. And after his due diligence, it worked out fine. You know, so uh, that had a really happy ending. What about you? Okay. So uh, just recently, just here in the last uh, week or so, I was meeting with a general dentist, husband and wife team, and just cute wife, handsome husband. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was that young. I mean, they're in their late 20s. Just happy couple. No... No kids or anything yet. Just simple life. <laughs> so sweet. So first question out of the gate, you know, that we're really good at is just instead of financials numbers, tell me about you. You know, yeah. where do you want to be? Married, kids, you know, tell me about, you know, your experience. This case, uh, this young man and her, they, they graduated the same year. They've been out a year and a half. And so he went to go work at a denture clinic. Mm-hmm. And crazy numbers, Christy. I'm talking, I this my Normally, I'm not like, what? What'd you say? But this was a what'd you say moment. Um, he was doing between two and a half and three million dollars of collections. What? His first. So it's basically graduated in June and then that full year. Man. Two and a half to about three million. That's crazy. Yeah. So he worked for this denture clinic and he was in a flat salary of, of $200,000. Oh. Denture clinic making money, no, making no. money on this young man. So good for good for, good for corporate it. America for taking advantage of him, but now good for him to see the opportunity to yeah. go forward. So I already know he can produce. Mm-hmm. So I know if he can do two million, let's be conservative. Let's be conservative and say he can do a million five. Yeah. Let's be conservative that his wife can do five hundred thousand collections, which she could. I know they can do almost $2 million a doctor. That tells me we can probably go and buy a $2.5 million practice. Let's even be more conservative. Let's just say, hey, you're both making about $350,000 a year right now as an associate. Let's go try to find a $1.5 million, $2 million practice. Maybe it's got a 60% overhead. We can work less and make two, three times the amount of money. So they're going to do a startup. They wanted a space big enough for both of them. In this case, they're going to build a six-chair practice. Six-chair practice, we're talking about $550,000, $575,000 for a beautiful practice with, again, zero patients and zero cash flow. So now they're going to have to work part-time and build this thing up and to try to get the 1,800 active patients. we got to figure out how quick we can grow that thing which is a great segue, which we can talk about more in depth next week or in two weeks. Yes. (laughs) So in this case, I basically said, let's just exhaust marketing ourselves to these practices. Mm -hmm. So now I gave him a little homework assignment and basically said to try to dive into these practices that have five or six chairs, the two, three hygienists that we might see so we can back these numbers into that million, five or $2 million practice they can go market to. Now we use our marketing campaign. Now we're going to do our mail, our phone, and our email campaign. But in this case, you're going to have a small number of those practices. So I may call two or three times. I may show up at the door. I may send them a box uh, with a present inside, Mm -hmm. something to get their attention to know 
that I am real and I am coming to your particular town and we're going to set up from scratch. So if you're thinking about an associateship, thinking about a transition, this now would be the time. And using all of the tricks we talked about earlier, which as far as, you know, how they nailed down that list to find the opportunity was to use the tricks we talked about first in this episode, which is go online, see how many ops, because they needed a practice big enough, right? Why waste your time on the practice that's a million when you know you're going to have to support two doctors? So using the tricks of the how many ops and how many hygienists and all of those pieces to find the practice and narrow down that pool so they could really invest time to do the right wooing. This is our Nancy Drew episode. (laughs) (laughs) Every time we talk to clients, you know, you remember I I said sometime early on that I was selfishly putting together these podcasts just so I didn't have to repeat myself for the next 30 Mm -hmm. years is I could say, go listen to this episode. So now we'll just refer to this as the Nancy Drew episode. You've just given it a title. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I've accomplished something today. So we're going to talk about (laughs) when Nancy Drewing becomes red flags real quick. So one thing, and I mentioned this at the beginning of our time together, red flags, there are times when it's worrisome, right? If someone is unwilling to give you a profit and loss or a tax return at a point where they're asking you to make a letter of intent, if someone is not willing to give you production reports or payroll reports, especially anytime after you have a letter of intent on a practice, sellers should be an open book, Mm -hmm. right? Lenders need you to be an open book. You need to understand what you're buying. And so at any point in time where there's a stop and there's hesitation or there's a gut feeling that you're not getting the full answer, that is a red flag and that is not what we're talking about today. I know it is both of our pet peeves when brokers require buyers to sign a letter of intent before they give them any financial information. Absurd. Number one kind of gripe in our industry. My pulse just went from a 50 to a 90. There's nothing more than infuriates me that if I'm trying to buy a million dollar practice, that the broker is requiring me to maybe pay a percentage of the cost to do the sale, on top of which I need to sign this uh, and say basically, you need to put your offer in before we do any due diligence, mm-hmm. any tax returns, any anything. You got to sign this and then we can negotiate after that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. The only time I want to do that is there's not a price in there. Exactly. And I'm happy to sign that as long as, right? And a broker will always say, well, it's not binding. Well, if it's not binding, why do we care about it? And why am I going to tell you a price that I'm not committed to? So it's a red um, flag. It's total red flag. So just know that's not what we're talking about here today. More of the Nancy Drew initial investigation. So that is all we have time for today. Good. My my, my pulse has gone down now. Thank you. (laughs) Hopefully you feel a bit more capable in the event you get in the imperfect diligence situation or if you're trying to kind of narrow down which ones you want to diligence. Remember, if you're just finding us, you can find episodes one through 13 on our site or via SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, let us know and share us with your friends. So have a great week. Until next time. Give me a high five, Christy. That was a good, good episode. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. (laughs)